Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He's an explorer, a photographer, and an amateur historian. Evan Woodard is digging into history, searching for the lost and forgotten stories of Maryland. His excavation company, Salvage Ark, has tens of thousands of social media followers. Today, we're going one-on-one with Maryland's treasure hunter. Evan Woodard, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about Salvage Ark for anyone who is not familiar. Um, well, so I started Salvage Ark back during the pandemic in 2020 as a way to just get outside and find history lost in our own woods and backyards. And from there, it's kind of like blown up into this thing where, you know, I'm doing all this research, writing, and getting out there and just educating people about the history that's, like I said, in their backyard, but also just around us here in Baltimore and now around the nation. Mm-hmm. If people are interested, how can they find you? How can they sort of follow your adventures? They can find me on Instagram. That's the main one. That's going to be Salvage Arc. And then mm-hmm. on YouTube and Facebook, also under the same name, Salvage Arc. That's A-R-C. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about, I mean, this was a passion that started for you sort of hunting for treasures, buried treasures when you were young. Talk to me about how you grew up with that passion for history. Yeah, so I grew up uh, not too far away from a um, well, from here in Baltimore, but also near a uh, old like wildlife preserve. And there's a lot of towns that were once in that area. And so I would just go exploring through the woods and, you know, find all these cool abandoned relics, cars, engine blocks, farming tools, things like that. And as a kid, you know, that, you know, got my curiosity going. But back then, you didn't really have the internet to go search and find all these things. So as I got older, I still was into that. And I would do urban exploring, finding abandoned places with the aid of like Google Earth and things. But that then just it didn't just stop there. It was like, okay, let me find out what else I can, you know, discover about this building. What's the history about it? So just I've always had that love of going deeper, you know, pulling that thread and seeing what else you can find. Mm-hmm. One of the first things you were doing is kind of taking photos of abandoned buildings. What was it that just intrigued you about places that kind of were frozen in time like that? It's it's just like really forgotten. Um, these places, you know, are, are dotted all around us, especially here in Baltimore. And these massive buildings were, you know, centers of industry. Uh, people work there. People lives are centered around it. And then when that industry failed or that company closed, they were just left, like time just stopped. So mm-hmm. some of the places I've gone into, you can really tell that everyone either just left in a hurry or it was a sudden thing. You know, one example would be like Chernobyl going through there. You can see that life really just stopped the instant that, you know, the a- accident happened. People were evacuated. They left so much behind clothing, toys, books, you know, some of the chalkboards in the classroom still had writing on them from that day. And so it's really neat to see just life standing still, something that you really don't get to see in, in normal, you know, everyday, you know, your own life. Mm-hmm. How did the Chernobyl trip even happen? How did that come about? <laughs> well, this was back before it was like a tourist attra- uh, attraction. Yeah. <laughs> so I had some connections and I ended up paying a fixer. It was a couple thousand dollars basically to be my guide inside the zone. And that money went towards bribing the officials there to allow me to stay and just have all access uh, during my time there, I did come across some folks that were on a tour there. It was like more of a an official like, oh, hey, come up from Kiev and you know, see the city. But you stay on a bus, you have to wear a Tyvek suit and you look kind of ridiculous. 
And then I come popping out of one of the buildings, just wearing a pair of jeans and a t-shirt <laughs> and my camera. And they just look at me like, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> that is quite the experience. You mentioned like sort of the beginning of the pandemic is when you kind of got more into relic hunting. Was there like something that happened that made you say, this is interesting. How do I pursue this? Uh, well, prior to the pandemic, I was working in the commercial real estate area with photography. So when it happened, I wasn't allowed to go into buildings anymore. So it kind of limited my creative space. And then I had a lot of free time all of a sudden. So I decided, you know, go out with my friend, Matt. We were hiking in the woods near his parents' house. We started finding these old beer bottles on the ground. And then that's when I created this, you know, whole new Instagram account. So I didn't flood the commercial photography page with old beer bottles because I wanted to keep it on brand there. And then after I started posting them and really digging deeper into the history of the manufacturers or who they were, where they came from, you know, their whole story, I noticed that people were really liking it and the track, it just grew so fast. Yeah, I think I got my first thousand followers within, I think, two or three weeks there. And then it's just steadily, you know, taken off since then. Uh Why is Baltimore such a unique place? Baltimore and really Maryland, such a unique place to be relic hunting like you are. Well, it's a couple of factors. Um, We are an old city. I mean, the United States itself is pretty young compared to the rest of the world. But when you look at where we're at in the United States, we're on the older side of things. So in the East, we have more history, more established. Uh, We also had a lot of immigrants come in through Baltimore that brought their tools and technology and their trades from Europe when they landed here. And instead of continuing on the railroad to another city, they just set up shop here in Baltimore. And we had so many breweries. I, mm-hmm. I think it was like over 121 at one point, just here in the city of Baltimore alone. And so all of those breweries had different stories, different families tied to them. And a lot of those families actually still live here in Baltimore today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just, it's a never ending story uh, of just discovery here in the city. And I mean, I was just actually through a library not too long ago. Uh, there mm-hmm. was some research and I just came across something I'd never heard of. Um, the first transatlantic submarine was from Germany and docked here in Baltimore when it arrived. So that's like a whole story that just kind of lost the history. But again, there's there's so much more there we can talk about and discover and teach people about. Mm-hmm. One of the first places you kind of started digging was privies, old privies. So explain to people if they don't really know what a privy is, what that is, and why they were of interest to you. Yeah. So a privy is the old outhouse. You know, prior to really World War One here in Baltimore, a lot of places just had outhouses. Uh, we didn't get public water until a little bit later. And these areas also doubled as your trash cans. So if you had you know, household trash that you wanted to get rid of, you didn't have a trash can you go throw it, to, throw it into outside or anything like that. You just threw it in this big hole you already had out back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a perfect place. Now, periodically, this hole was supposed to get cleaned out. But oftentimes, some of the people that were of lower economic status or that just didn't really care, they would leave all the contents inside, fill in the hole, and then build a new one. And with this, you basically have a very confined area uh, with a ton of artifacts, a ton of history placed inside of it. But oftentimes these places are in construction sites or parking lots or in other sites that are in danger of being demolished or actively being uh, destroyed. So it's a race against time to say what you can, document what you can, and then not hold up construction workers or developers, but also being able to save that history at the same time. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of identify where a privy is? Like, what's the whole process of you going and digging up this history in a development site or someone's yard? 
Yeah, so if we start with, um, I'll use a parking lot, for example. Uh, there's certain areas of the city, mainly anything below Monument and some parts of like Mount Vernon that are very, very old. And those are the, the areas that were already established pre-Civil War. These sections of the city are going to have a higher concentration of homes and privies that are likely still there. So if we go to a parking lot and I approach the developer and say, hey, look, we know that there were homes here at one point. We would like to excavate your lot and fix where the sinkholes are uh-huh. uh, because those sinkholes actually form over top of the old privies. You know, they're more than willing when they hear that they don't have to pay anything. <laughs> they, get a, they get the parking lot fixed for free. Everyone mm-hmm. wins. But if it's a site that's just like a grass field or someone's current home, then it's measuring out the property dimensions. So that information I can find by looking at the old Sanborn maps mm-hmm. or researching old property records uh, through Maryland State Archives. And so once I have a defined property line, then I search in the back corners or somewhere along that backyard area for either a depression or a soft spot in soil that I can find with a privy probe, which is really just a long piece of trunk steel, which is like the spring that they would have used back in the day for to keep trunks open. And you, you probe that in the ground. And when it hits uh, like natural soil, it's pretty hard, pretty stiff. But when it's a privy, it's filled in, it's soft and ashy. So it's like sticking a hot knife through butter and it just goes right in. And so then you start digging and you hopefully find artifacts. The Free To Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, now offering healthcare in the library. Nursing students from the University of Maryland School of Nursing, supervised by a registered nurse, are now providing health information and screenings at four Pratt locations. Details at prattlibrary.org. How far down do you have to dig? Uh, that depends. It all depends on where you are in the city. Fells Point, places closer to the water where the water table is already high. You can go anywhere from two feet to eight feet. Mostly it's on the lower side in those areas. But places like Seton Hill, Mount Vernon, things like that, where it's higher up in the city, um, we've gone down as far as 35 feet. Oh, my goodness. What kind of safety equipment do you need to go down 35 <laughs> feet? <laughs> So, I mean, a lot of the the deep privies are pretty much structures in the ground. They're like a smokestack. Uh, they're yeah. brick lined. They are not going to go anywhere. They're circle. And so it's a pretty strong structure. There's no worry of like a cave in or anything like that. We do have harnesses and ropes and climbing ladders and, and uh, pulleys to get people out and in along with tools on dirt easily. And if we have to use it in an emergency, we can. But, you know, I've been down there myself and it's I've never like worried about anything caving in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're very aware of your surroundings and you look at the wall and you can kind of tell if something's moving or shifting, then you either take care of that problem, brace it, or abandon the hole altogether. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you're finding inside those privies? The majority of the artifacts are household uh, items. So plates, bowls, toys, eating utensils, pipes, and then also glass artifacts like beer bottles, sodas, medicine bottles, milk bottles. Oftentimes, a lot of them are just smashed to bits or broken, but every so often you get pieces that are whole or enough of the item, especially with ceramics, that you can reassemble for study and documentation and then submitting that information to a database for uh, other researchers. Mm -hmm. What kind of story does it tell about the people that once lived there? Like, can you tell just by what you pull out if you were digging in Mount Vernon versus digging in Fells Point? I wouldn't say it's, it's geographically you can, but okay. you can tell if the person was sick. Did they have kids? 
could they read or write? Because if you can find an inkwell in the privy, they most likely knew how to read or write. But if you find nothing but medicine bottles, well, then they're probably sick all the time hmm. or had uh, an issue drinking because most of our medicines back then were just basically uh, alcohol-based. <laughs> uh, and then with kids, you find a lot of marbles, dolls, uh, other little trinkets and toys. And so it paints a picture of who lived there at what time and what their life was like. So it's not like you're going to get like this exactly belonged to, you know, John Smith, unless you can trace something back like a, a ring that I found. And I was actually able to trace that all the way back to the guy that manufactured it. But um, wow. those kind of instances are few and far between. But most of the time, it's just a general overview of the house and who came and went or and or lived there at the time. Can you tell something about, I guess, the economic level of the people that live there based on what you're finding? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can look at like the food scraps. So a lot of bones and shells are placed and tossed into the privy. Uh So if I come across a lot of oyster shells or other like crustaceans, then that home was probably poor uh, since those were like super cheap foods and they're everywhere, uh, Uh which is kind of fun because nowadays those are the expensive foods. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But if you find a lot of bones and meat, uh, like steak bones, chicken bones, you know, anything else, that's a well-off house that they had access to food. And then you can also look at if they were getting a lot of skulls, were they eating like the parts of the animals that most people didn't want? So things like that, you can, you can tell like what their life was like, if they had money or not. And also the type of china and porcelain that was tossed into the privy or even the alcohol too, like the bottles. Hmm. When you sort of excavate the diggings done, you've got the artifacts. What is the process after that, when you sort of take the artifacts home and you're trying to kind of figure out what you have, how do you do that research? How do you sort of tend to the artifacts to make sure that you're keeping them safe? Yeah. So once uh, everything's like sorted out um, after a dig, you know, everyone get, kind of gets to pick what they want. But then for me, it's get everything back home, start washing, keep everything separated from any other potential artifacts that might have come out from a different day or a different hole. And then once I've got everything washed up, it goes into a little database that I keep on my computer so that I can log the site, the depth, the type of structure, any other details about the feature itself, and then start listing off the artifacts. And if I can start tracing those back to where they came from, who made them, things like that, then I also start including that into my list. Uh So once I have that information, then I start building out a story, especially if I find a really interesting artifact or something neat. And that's when I'll start making the post with those items like that. And then other items that I uh, select, I sometimes donate to the Baltimore Museum of Industry for their collection so that it can you know, go on and, and live for future generations. Mm-hmm. Can you share, I guess, one of the stories behind one of the artifacts that you found where your research was able to lead you? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite artifacts is this wedding ring that I found in a privy near Old Town, uh, the Old Town area of Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. And the ring was a very specific type of metal called pinchbeck. Huh. Now, I didn't know this going in because I just found it. It was really crusty. It looked terrible. You couldn't tell it was even really what type of metal it was. But after cleaning it, I actually took it up to Smythe Jewelers and they did a little chemical like analysis on it, told me what it was. But from that analysis, I was able to research further. And that's when I find that it was pinchbeck. Now, pinchbeck was a type of metal used specifically for coach building and clock making. It was like a fool's gold. So huh. you wanted to look cool but you didn't want to have the cost or worry about something being stolen. So after finding that information out, I started researching more about the property itself and who might have lived there. And so after going back through the deeds from basically 2022 all the way to 1790, 
98, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. when the house and the property was first sold and built, uh, I found the man that made that lived there. Uh, his name was Septimus Tustin. And Septimus Tustin was a known clock builder and watchmaker here in Baltimore. Yeah. And so from that, I traced it back to when was he married, which was right before he purchased the house. And you can see that the ring was hammered and forged. And that type of forging style went out around 1750s. So it matches up to when he got married and that he likely made this ring for his wife. Oh, that's amazing. You um, talked a little bit about with your research, you use a lot of library resources. What are some of those resources that are available either here or at the Library of Congress where it's really helping you tell these stories? Uh, I mean, it's it's endless at, at both places. Uh, <laughs> is is amazing for what they have uh, in their collection. I mean, the newspaper archives in Baltimore Sun is great. All of the transcripts and logs about uh, immigration, uh, ships coming to and from the city, uh, just businesses that are here, the maps. I mean, all that information helps build a full profile for an artifact. And then Library of Congress has lots and lots of lithographs and prints and broadsides for different advertisements and other companies uh, like patents for medicines and things that were created here in Baltimore or that relate to the artifact itself. So you can really build out something that's just not a little more than just this is, you know, Anheuser-Busch's beer bottle, but let's tell the story of why Anheuser-Busch had a factory here in Baltimore and how that made it possible along with them basically creating the whole refrigerated rail car network so that they could move the beer from St. Louis to Baltimore. Yeah, it's amazing the type of stories that you can tell with all of these resources that are just available right at your fingertips and even on our website, you know, and you sometimes you don't even have to leave home <laughs> to find out all these stories. Yeah, that's what I love. And it's like, it, it's free to the public. I mean, anyone can go look at this stuff. And I think that's what makes the project and just when you find something, you're like, I just unravel this whole you know mystery to me or whoever, uh, just by sitting at my computer or taking a trip down to the library. And you know, poking around and seeing what I can find. You talked about some of the pieces you've donated to the museum. You've done quite a few other things with some of the pieces, including making art and jewelry. Talk to me how you got into doing that. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the jewelry and art part came about. Um, there's a lot of pieces that come out of these privies that just don't have anything to match up with them, and they're just very common or not historically significant for logging items and I can't put them back together for study, but I don't want them to sit in a box. I don't want them to go to the trash and I don't want them to sit, you know, just forever. So I figured I'd start learning how to turn them into jewelry. And I worked with one of my friends, Juliet Ames, who actually does the broken plate jewelry here in Baltimore mm-hmm. at the beginning. And I was giving her a lot of these pieces for her to create and stuff. And eventually one day her and I were talking and she's like, why don't you just learn how to do this yourself? And she taught me. And here I am now, you know, I'm able to take something from the ground and turn it all the way back into jewelry so that the story lives on with people. Uh, You don't just get the jewelry, you actually get the information about where it came from. And if I can locate any other information about who made it or anything, it's also included with it. Oh, wow. So that's cool. You get like a a piece that you can wear and then a story behind it. Yeah. You know, you can go buy a necklace from from the jewelry store, but it doesn't have any like real story with it. But now you can go out with this one and you tell your friends like, oh yeah, this came from an old Kirby here in Baltimore. Here's who made it and this is how old it is. And I think that's a, a cooler piece. Did you know that anyone in Maryland can get a Pratt library card? Download eBooks, learn a new language or have books sent right to your local library. More details at prattlibrary.org.
You talked about gaining social media followers so quickly. Did it surprise you how much people were interested in everything you were doing? I mean, right from the get-go, because your social media followers just keeps doubling and doubling and doubling. Yeah, it's it, it was insane, that's for sure. I didn't know that history would be this captivated people. You know, I loved history class myself, but I remember most people have always said like, eh, it was boring because you just get facts, you get a number and a date, and that's really about it. And I kind of took that. I was like, well, we can always give you more. It's just a matter of how much can we cram into like a post or a video, but still keep it interesting and relatable. And I think that's the one thing that I really hit on here is making sure that everything I post is relatable and that someone can understand it and put themselves either in that person's shoes or has that experience at some point in their own life that they understand. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel like it's so important for history and things like archaeology to be as accessible as you've been able to make them for a wider audience? Well, with so much going on in the world, there's a lot of history that gets kind of mucked up where it has mm-hmm. a spin on it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I want people to understand that they can go research it on their own Kids can also go out in their own backyards and find these items. Uh, if they want to start digging, you don't have to think of archaeology as some far off land, that there's plenty of work to be done here in America, uh, here in Baltimore, everywhere. Uh, there's only a certain amount of archaeologists out there. So there's no way that they can get all these sites nor save all this information. So it's going to have to come down to everyone just working together to be like, look, we're going to go out here and do the same thing. It might not be your style that you want, but we're going to be able to save history at the end of the day. And I think that's the bigger picture. And I think that's way more important than um, it being done in like an, an academic life. Yeah. I was just saying, when you think of archaeologists, you think of somebody who's been in school forever, who's like, you know, digging up dinosaur bones or something like that. It feels, <laughs> it feels not accessible. And what you're doing just feels so accessible to the general public. And it's such a way to capture our history that's right here underneath our feet. Yeah, it's, I've told people before, like, you could walk almost anywhere here in the city and start digging, and you're going to find something. Uh, With a city this old, and with as much construction and development that is going on right now, it's not going to take long for you to find a piece of pottery. I I went to a a person's house, a follower's house in Hamden not too long ago, and she's like, I don't think there's going to be anything here. And within like five minutes, I was already pulling out stuff for her, and she was just, you know, so thrilled about it. And even didn't get like the full privy, but we had all these like artifacts from people that lived in our house beforehand, pieces of China, things that she understood what they were, a key, a really cool spoon. And mm-hmm. it's just that amazement. It's almost like Christmas Day, you know, for a homeowner or a property developer. Mm-hmm. Like this was right beneath my feet this whole time. I had no idea. And a lot of times we just leave stuff like that. Like I want the homeowner to have something themselves that mm-hmm. they can talk about and share with their family and friends whenever they come over there. Yeah, I mean it's truly treasure hunting, and you've you're exploring new depths with your treasure hunting with a new hobby, magnet fishing. So I'm <laughs> going to let you explain what magnet fishing is because it's now become the latest trend in Baltimore, thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the segue there; that was great. Um, <laughs> the yeah, magnet fishing is something that I've, I've seen on YouTube for you know probably the last year or so. But during Christmas, I said, you know, I'm going to get myself a large magnet, and these are specially designed magnets made to be thrown into the water and tied to a rope and then pulled back in. And they're super strong. The ones that I use are about 3,500 pounds to 4,200 pound uh, pull force. And mm-hmm. so once it gets on something, it's not really going to come off in ideal conditions. 
Now, obviously, things down there in the water are not in ideal conditions, yeah. uh, deteriorated, or they only have like a small part of them above the surface, or they're covered in mud or something like that. So it's turned out to be a way of just a cleaning up the water around us um, in our city, but also just going out there, finding finding things out there, having fun, and getting people together to join in this hobby. Last weekend, last Thursday, actually, I pulled out a large shipping hook from the 1800s. After I cleaned it up and everything, it was in almost perfect condition. Uh, just some slight deterioration, but otherwise, it's it's stunning. Have you been doing it just in Fells Point, or have you traveled around the area doing it? Yeah, I've done it mainly here in Baltimore, so Fells, Canton, Fed Hill. But I have gone down to Old Town Alexandria and Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and I have plans to go even further uh, come this spring and summer. When you first started, it was just you and like one or two other people, or was it just you? How did it start, and how has it grown in the past <laughs> in the past few weeks? Uh, it started out with just me and the crew of guys that I usually dig with. After one of our digs, we finished early, and I was like, "Hey, I got my magnet. Do you want to go down to Fells?" Then we went out and we caught like a knife and some other like random things, but they were just still thrilled with it. And I was like, "All right, cool." So I did it again a couple of days later, and I had some other friends come out. And now it's up to our last meet. I think it was, and this is only the third weekend, is uh, 25, 30 people. And so <laughs> who knows how people show up on this Thursday? I love it. People are really interested. So what are some of the like most typical, some of the mundane things that you're pulling out? I've seen a lot of scooters. Oh, so many scooters. Um, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every scooter, I'd buy like a nice sandwich. Yeah, there's just so many scooters. Lots and lots of building material, especially in the, the Fells Point area. Lots of rebar, fishing nets, fishing line, uh, a couple of knives. And then we got the gun uh, back at the beginning of January. It was a yeah. uh, 3D printed gun. So oh. we were lucky to catch it just because of the barrel itself being metal, but everything else, actually the slide was metal too. But yeah, everything else <laughs> was all plastic. I was going to say, what so do you do when you get one of those? <laughs> uh, yeah, you call the police. Uh, they came yeah. and they took it. Yeah, I mean, I just put it in a bucket, put the bucket away from me. I was like, it's right there. You can get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so interesting. So besides the hook, uh, what has the experience been like? I mean, it has to be really community building to have that many people turn out for what's essentially a modern day treasure hunt in our own backyard. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it's been an, a crazy turnout. We have people coming from the Eastern Shore now every week to come join in. You know, folks that bring out their families, their kids. One father's brought out his kids, I think, every time to every one of these events. And and mind you, this is in the middle of winter. Most of these events have been <laughs> super cold. So, like, we're talking, like, 20s and 30s. And then this Thursday, it'd be 60. But you know, the majority of them are very cold. So I can only imagine how it's going to be when it's warmer. And, you know, everyone can just be out. It's lighter later. And, and then everyone just goes to a restaurant afterwards and has a couple of drinks and eats some food and, you know, talks about what they found and, it's really neat. It's a really cool uh, community event. If you want to come out, what do you need to know or bring if you're if you're coming to <laughs> magnet fishing night? Um, yeah. So first off, would probably be a magnet, uh, which you can find. I've linked like a, a compiled list of really good ones on my website that you can go purchase. And then outside of that, if people are more than welcome just to come watch or help clean up, uh, a pair of gloves, like work gloves, is really good, and a some large contractor trash bags just to put everything in once we're done so that um, we clean up after ourselves. Mm-hmm. You have been doing at sort of this relic hunting, both on land and by sea, um, just for a few years now. And you've traveled to do it. What are some of the places outside of Baltimore where you have been sort of treasure hunting? <laughs> uh, so I've been to Philadelphia numerous of times, New York City, 
uh, upstate New York, uh, New Jersey, Virginia, uh, West Virginia, and I'm trying to think if there's any, Pennsylvania. But I definitely want to take this show on the road some more uh, come this year, get down south a little more, check out like Charleston, uh, some other places like New Orleans, and then eventually get back overseas and check out some sites over there too. I've got some folks in the UK uh, along with the Netherlands and Poland. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like we've talked about, America's history is sort of in its infancy compared to overseas. Is there a place overseas that is like the grand mecca that you want to go? Uh, it depends like what I want to find. Um, I, I have a, I'm a really big like World War II history buff. So mm-hmm. actually going to like battlefields like that and helping repatriate fallen soldiers would be a really neat experience for me. But if I wanted to find like super old things, probably anywhere in you know the UK or France would be great. Um, they have really weird laws about what you find over there and what you have to do All with right. it. So anything that's actually old, they want. But what's funny is like the things that we would think is old, like 1700s, 1600s, they don't care about. So that, <laughs> <laughs> like that's modern basically to them. So, but they want the really old things. I'm fine with that, you know, as long as they still get to see it and hold it. Things mm-hmm. they So my last question for you, if there is someone interested in relic hunting, if someone's young and interested in history, what would be your advice for them about really how important it is to honor some of the lost and forgotten stories of the people that came before us? Uh, I would say, you know, go to your local library first and check out the old maps. Look at the area that you live in and see what structure is already listed out there. So back there in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, and then compare that to a map of today and see what areas are either overgrown, what has changed, what might even still be there. And there's so much out there that people just kind of forget about, old bridges, railroads, things like that, that are just lost in the woods. And so if you find someplace that's interesting, just reach out to the property owner and talk to them, explain to them what you're looking to do. And honestly, 90% of the time, these people are really cool and have no idea about what's out there on their own property and are more than willing to let you go explore. Well, you never know what you might find. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Evan Woodard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Megan. Imagination Celebration is back at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. It all kicks off with a free family festival on March 25th at the Central Library. Giveaways, The Bubble Magician, Animals, Storytelling, and more. Then attend events all April long at the Pratt Branches. More details at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.